Velkommen til Live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Mit navn er Lise Bak Hansen, og jeg præsenterer denne podcast med highlights fra det Kongelige Biblioteks kulturscene i Den Sorte Diamant. I denne udsendelse tager vi til det savnomspundne Arktis i selskab med den dansk-islandske kunstner Olafur Eliassen. Verdens yderområder er på få årtier kommet i centrum, både i international politik og i debatten om klodens fremtid. I en tid, hvor landskabet i Arktis er i voldsom forandring, er det Kongelige Bibliotek gået sammen med biblioteker i Stockholm, Oslo, Nuuk og New York for at undersøge, hvad der sker, når isen i Arktis forsvinder. Med afsæt i bibliotekernes polarsamlinger diskuterer kunstnere og forskere klimaforandringernes betydning i live-samtaler på bibliotekerne. Mens organisationer og politikere i hele verden kæmper for at forhindre klimaforandringerne i at eskalere, skal du i denne podcast høre Olaf Eliassens tanker om at skabe klimabevidsthed gennem kunst. Sammen med amerikaneren Paul Holdengraber, der står bag Live from New York Public Library, diskuterer Eliasson økofilosofi samt kunstens rolle i klimaspørgsmål. God fornøjelse. Before we begin, I would like us to turn down the lights and listen to a piece that Merce Cunningham did, and we'll talk about it afterwards. It comes from our collection at the New York Public Library. Just to tell you what we heard, these are Arctic sounds, Miss Cunningham, it's part of our Library of the Performing Arts archives. It was recorded near Barrow, Alaska, by the Cornell Bioacoustics Research Program. And you can hear seals, whales, and I think importantly for you, crackling ice. Mm. I wonder what, if and what this might have inspired in you. <clears throat> I think knowing that Merce Cunningham was involved rec- with recording 
I guess we can also ask uh, how we, um, or I ask myself, how did I listen to it? And somehow, um, I guess the challenge or the inspiring aspect is it to listen to it with your body. And, to, and I think it's actually possible if we pay attention to it that we draw attention away from our ears because we tend to listen, you know, sort of allow our ear to become, a, you know, sort of a little funnel into us. But maybe we could um, think of the sound really uh, taking uh, a more physical shape in your body. And I guess for each one of us, we might as well start today by uh, sort of examining if you now think of the sound exiting the speaker in this room and entering your body, where did it then go? That would be, I think, a way Merz uh, would have asked. Yeah. Where does the sound go? Yeah, well, inside of you. Yeah. Does yeah. it end in your brain? Is it data? Did you just listen to a, a kind of a file that entered your brain? Or did it, in fact, go into your body? I mean, did it, for some people, maybe it went into the arms. Where did it go for you? Well, I was hoping uh, to um, be a little more relaxed, but of course now I'm a little tense, so I struggled a bit. But I think it, I, I, I think it sort of went to the belly, right? The belly. Yeah, maybe not quite sort of down there, but you know, relatively uh, deep. The gut, you know, which is I'm I'm so interested to know when we talk about gut feelings. What's so interesting about that is the gut is where we have the most nerve endings. So when things go really deep down, that's when we feel them most. And I know that this kind of experience is an experience that you try to bring about in your own work. Yeah, so, so this in a, in a way, the idea, the, 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 exactly this idea of challenging your head a little bit and say, well, the head is really only the beginning. We receive things as thoughts, often from the future, you know, so, you could say that an artistic idea is a thought that has not yet been thought, and it arrives to us from the future, and if we are lucky, it reaches us in the gut, right? And this is interesting because it has to do with, do we succeed to embody the thinking? Because we have so much access to data. You know, being in a library, we tend to think that the brain the brain is the sort of arrival, you know, the, the place where we host the, the, the sort of all the knowledge in, a, in, in, in your library or in this library. But the truth is, if we succeed, and I'm not saying it's easy, we are actually able to listen and to read with our whole body. And of course, Merce Cunningham was very much into that. So in, in, a, in a way, what you're also saying is that we should somehow be more humble with what we think our brain is capable of. And you know, the word humble is so interesting. Now I'm using my head and I'm using my knowledge to impress you all. The, the word humble, which has a sense of humility, comes from humus, which means the earth. So we need to be humble in the sense that we need to be more earth-like. Yeah. And not, not, well, no, 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 no. I, I know that this usually is not a, a conversation starter to, well, you know, to well, talk about etymology, but I think with Olafur Eliasson it might be. 
No, humble, I mean, as long as it doesn't pacify Ryubi, some people are so humble that it seems to uh, offer them very little space of action. Mm. And I don't mind, you know, obviously humble is a great treat, and it could be a fierce kind of humble. I'm humble in a fierce way, right? I like that. So that's a productive type of humble. And, um, and that's why I think it's very important to be uh, sort of conscious about how does it actually physically feel to, you know, take in the world in a humble, fierce type of way. You know, I, I, uh, when I came here last, maybe two times ago, I, I quoted the line of Kierkegaard, I so much love, so much love. And I know it isn't Kierkegaard, but Kierkegaard, or I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, <laughs> but I, I, I know I have it wrong. And he said that the goal was to arrive at immediacy after reflection. That's what I mean by fears. Yeah. Immediacy is like I'm on the brink to turning my thoughts or my thinking into doing. Immediacy is like an empowering feeling of feeling interconnected and ready to act. Um, so Kierkegaard allows us to reconsider being an object into a, a sort of an, a predefined object into a non-definable subject. It gives you agency or, it, or he allows us to take on our own subjective space proposing that we are actually free with a free will to act. And, and what he also says is that in a way we've, we've tasted the apple or the fruit. Actually in the Bible it isn't really an apple. It's become a little bit more literal when we talk about the apple. We've tasted the fruit of knowledge and now with all of this knowledge, how do we go back to being childlike? How do we go back to, you know, experiencing the world as if anew? Well, I think we don't go back, first of all, because there's a certain retroactive um, idea in that which might um, prevent us from being proactive. Right. So maybe us becoming children again is really not going back to where we were, but moving ahead to where we want to be. I love that. Um, so there is hope. Oh yes, absolutely. Maybe not for the Arctic, but in general, no, yes. We'll, we'll get to the Arctic in a moment, but I didn't want to begin on, on the saddest note. No, no. Um, let's, let's look through some of the images um, of, of your, your ice watch. Um, let's go through the images at a slow pace, and we have them here, and you might want to comment a little bit on it. So image number one. Yeah, this is in Paris at the COP22. Is there a possibility of making it the whole screen? I'm not sure. It's pretty big, big it's already. Pretty big, okay. <laughs> I, just, I, mean, I just wanted it bigger, but no. This, okay. is, uh, this is Denmark, Paul. Okay. <laughs> it, well, this is Denmark? No, tell me, I, no, I want no. to understand. No, that no, joke. that's okay, that's an internal joke. No, I want to understand. <laughs> Okay. No, America, everything is bigger and larger. We, we know where that leads. No, so this is actually Paris. I think it's, I think, um, it's called Ice Watch. As you can see, there's 12, and it's almost a little bit like a dial on a clock. And these are actually blocks of ice from Greenland. And it's a collaboration with uh, Mini Grosen, who is the um, professor of geology here at Copenhagen, and the director of the Botanical Garden as well. Minik is sitting right here. You should not hesitate to grab him afterwards. Um, so anyway, Iceland, uh, no, Greenlandic ice, 
And um, His Excellency, the French ambassador sitting up here, is very busy up here. Uh, <laughs> uh, he helped us uh, getting it through. And, and uh, this is only... Was uh, it hard to get a permit? Well, considering that it was only a few weeks after the uh, terror attacks in Paris, and uh, in the context of that, uh, we were very humble indeed. Uh, but f frankly speaking, uh, there was such a commitment to push ahead with the climate agenda, and I really uh, often has you know, mentioned the fact that the, that the friends, they uh, pulled, they act together under the most stressful conditions of all. What is the man doing there? He's this, is a, this is a so-called ice hugger. <laughs> a whole no. new subgenre. No, but, but, but the truth is, uh, ice is actually uh, a multisensorial um, sort of thing. And uh, besides being obviously cold, and let me just get back to that in a second, the ice is very noisy because the pressure of the ice has made all these tiny bubbles inside uh, sort of, uh, with all that lovely old air from back then when there was no pollution. So it's like the cleanest air in the world. These tiny bubbles, they kind of pop like popcorn. So when you listen to the ice, it's almost like a little pop concert uh, with these amazing little cracks uh, sort of bursting. And what, what does it sound like? Well, a bit like popcorn, actually, you know. Can you, can you make the sound? Not the microwave. Uh, can like you the, make the sound? Yeah, but it's like pop, 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 pop. That's what it does. And it's, and it's, and it's actually a lot. But can I just say something? Yeah. When you see ice like that, like this gentleman hugging it, you of course very clearly can see, oh, this is ice. And I think there's a sort of story here because it's with your head you establish, or with your mind or thoughts, you establish the fact, oh, I am looking at ice. And I've seen it in the paper. That's why I know what it looks like. And, and you know, there is that interesting moment where you uh, are suddenly in front of the ice and you touch it and you go, oh, it's actually cold. And what you indirectly say is that, oh, that's how cold feel like. Because obviously this person, we all know that ice is cold, but yet holding cold ice in your hand is a different activity in your brain compared to knowing that ice is cold, right? So there is a lovely connection in, in sort of neurologically speaking where suddenly the cold hand touching the ice and knowing that it's cold are connected. So there's a, you could say there's like an embodiment of the knowledge. And, and Incarnation. And the guy here clearly, as most of us do, uh, goes on and say, I cannot uh, get enough connecting my head to my body. I have to hug it. Look, they, they, they made it huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they love you here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really... Anyway, have, so this, is, really this is Greenland. So really thanks, to, thanks yeah. to Monique's amazing team in, in Greenland. Uh, you know, this is how then... This is called Ice Block. I mean, soon this won't be possible because they're, they're just gonna, not going to be there. But essentially... It won't here, be possible because... Well, they won't. I guess they, it's a sort of a dying race, that little bit of ice blocks there. It's going to be a while still, but... Point is, this is fishing the ice blocks before taking them to Paris in this case. It's like lassoing. No, so. This is incredible. That's the, so, so, Greenland, they ship frozen fish in these containers, so we um, put the ice in into it um, and kept it and shipped it frozen. We did do a carbon footprint monitoring uh, along the way to make sure that we sort of could be transparent about it. And details like that. But nevertheless, 
the ice is, quite frankly speaking, incredibly beautiful and it's very touching to see it. And in Paris at the time, there was a gathering of heads of states and scientists. And it was all over the papers, but obviously everybody was asking, well, what are they actually talking about? Right? And having experienced Copenhagen, they were also very skeptic, saying probably they won't succeed. Um, and, 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 you know, so the point here is, well, how can we show people in two seconds what the scientists of the IPCC, the UN, has written about on 400 pages? How can you turn 400 pages into an experience that takes less than a minute? So that's why um, I was interested in it. And you see, any, everybody just gets involved. It's also about public space and about the, you know, the potential of sharing a space to host um, diversity in a space. You know, there's a famous line by Mark Twain where he says that everybody talks about the weather but nobody does anything about it. It seems that... It's a wonderful quip, but so inaccurate now. We really have done something to our weather. Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have done something to the weather. When I was a child, the weather was still nature. It was out of reach. I went as a child to Iceland, and I was convinced, and to some extent I was right, that I was looking at landscape that no other person had touched or been into or seen before, probably. That was not quite the case, but I had the feeling I was on the moon. And there was this distinct idea, well, this is culture, and there's a line, and behind that line is nature, not touched by man. And one of the last things that I thought would be touched was the air that I was breathing, the atmosphere. And it turned out that as I grew older, I realized, well, that frontier has now been not just pushed, but it is vibrated. There is no nature left. Everything is, to that extent, culture. And I realized that even the ice blocks on the street in Paris is really sculpture, it's culture. The air de Paris is also culture. There is nothing left um, for us to call nature, which means we also have the responsibility to nurture it, whereas nature was sort of taking care of itself. And, and, and in your case, there's an interesting configuration that happens there, right, between there is no more nature, there is culture, but I will try to make people understand perhaps what nature could be by making an artwork. Yeah, I established the contract between thinking and doing because we know very well that the thinking and the doing, once you start to turn your thinking into doing, you realize, oh, I thought thinking about it was half done, or I almost did it. I told all my friends about it. And then I kind of, it feels like I, already, I posted on Facebook, I'm going to do this and this, I'm going to be so and so and all of that. And then you, as we know from behavioral psychologists, then we, all, we feel like, oh my God, I'm already pretty good. And it turns out that actually, um, I mean, that's why, it's, enough. that's why it's fun to be an artist. The distance between thinking about doing something and then actually doing something is paved with all these lovely small steps. 
called um, making a sketch, a doodle on a napkin, a bigger drawing, talking to a specialist, talking to an architect, talking to Monique, talking to the French ambassador, turning thinking into doing actually requires a lot of small steps about how can we make action happen. And, and I think to get, become comfortable with this, or become trust, trustful with this process of turning thinking into doing, is, uh, is such a rich, but also not so easy. Especially because we live in a society where exposing the thought is almost equivalent of, of action itself. But it's also, I mean, you're describing a practice, the thinking to the doing, in terms of the way you work, which is peculiar. Um, by that I mean to say you run an art studio, which one also could call a laboratory, a laboratory for ideas. Many artists who I've had the occasion to speak to will, will work very, very much on their own. And it feels to me as though the working on your own is something to some extent. I remember reading a wonderful interview with you where you talk about a week you spent in Maine and you just couldn't quite stand the loneliness of being there and the loneliness of being sometimes in your studio on your own. And you, you want the interaction of other people. I think I mentioned to you earlier, this is English psychoanalyst. I promise you I won't just talk all the time. This is English psychoanalyst who I adore named Adam Phillips, who wrote a book called On Tickling, Kissing and Being Bored. And he says that we can't tickle ourselves. We need other people. I mean, you can tickle yourself, but it doesn't really work as well. So I feel like in a way, You've taken Adam Phillips's comment, you can't tickle yourself, as nearly a principle of work. You need others, you need specialists around you. I, I was showing you a passage which I may or may not read of Bruno Latour, and I said, do you know Bruno Latour? And you immediately said, do I know him? We've worked together, he's done a reenactment with me. You surround yourself with scholars and artists and people in your laboratory, uh, to work, so it's a peculiar way of being an artist. Yeah, it sounds great when you talk about it. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to be no, you thank know, you called so much, into Paul. your studio yeah. one day. No, no, I mean, the truth is, I mean, it's, I, I, mean, I have a certain interest in... in um, Let's not, look at 16 and 17, sorry. I have a certain 16. interest in not putting myself on a pedestal, and I think it's also, I think uh, the truth is that the way we work in the studio, I mean, I don't mean to say that it's not unique or somehow, but I really also do think that it's something that everybody can, can do. And, you know, I mean, quite frankly, um, if you or if we focus and concentrate, we are really capable of uh, remarkable things. Uh, and it's funny, it's more difficult to focus and concentrate than it is to do the remarkable things. So, so the first step is sort of the hardest one. And that's why, I, I mean, I love it when people say, oh, I could have done that. Yes, exactly. I totally agree. You could have done it. It's actually not so hard. There's a hundred small steps, but it's important. You could. Yeah, because that's the whole point, right? The point is that people are actually capable 
of doing something, and that they really are. And there is nothing, and that's why it's actually quite important to say that the artist is not, you know, stepping out of reality and into some kind of dreamy, non-responsible zone where everything is possible and it's not hard to do. No, being an artist is also being a co-producer of society and being a participant in the public dialogue, you know, so, and, um, and, and we, I guess, have the benefit of having cultivated being comfortable with also being doubtful, you know, mm. hesitant. Mm. And sometimes I go, oh, I actually don't know. And I don't consider that counterproductive or a non-success. And, and, you know, I take the liberty and just say, I don't know, and it's a success. You know, and then just by saying it, you feel more comfortable uh, because obviously the success criteria generally in our society is like, if you don't know, you have failed. And, and that's not the case because not knowing is just one of the many steps you have to take turning thinking into doing. Um, so I mean, so, but of course I treasure my studio as being a resourceful, um, and an incredibly complex machine. But I mean, to be totally honest, to, to, to make a newspaper, it's a, to run a library, to, I mean, it's, I really would like to suggest, I am like this library, a cultural resonator, or a vibrator, if you will. I like that. Um, a hub, a hub of ideas. Yes, hub, yeah, parliament. Oh, it's a good word, hub is like a really low version of a parliament. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, in, in some way, a catalyst for ideas. Mm. Um, yeah, I like Parliament still, better. <laughs> I, I want to try a few more words, but, but I, I'll leave it to Parliament. You know, what, 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 what struck me in what you were saying is, is the notion of how you answer people who say, I could have done that, because we hear that all the time. I mean, the point is, one could say to the person who said, I could have done that, yeah, but you didn't, right? I mean, that could be one reaction, but it wouldn't be a very helpful reaction, and it might be actually cynical. The other day, the reason I arrived this morning or this afternoon in, in uh, Copenhagen, and therefore I'm completely jet-lagged, so anything that I say that is slightly off, I will attribute it entirely to my jet-lag, so I have a very good alibi. But... Um, Yesterday, uh, the day before yesterday, we had the great pleasure at the New York Public Library, which is, again, a hub, but more importantly, it's Ellis Island of New York. It's a point of entry of New York. It's a wonderful, wonderfully democratic, open uh, library with 52 million items. I always wonder who counted them. That would be very interesting. But at any rate, uh, we had Noam Chomsky and Wally Shawn. And one person asked at the, at the very end, what can we do? And Chomsky, and they spoke a lot about the Arctic, Chomsky said, what can't you do? He's 89 years old. There's not a grain of cynicism. Mm. You can do, and he, he said, you know, interesting things. He said, you know, in America, you're very, very, very free unless you're black and poor, and then he went through a number of different things that would be compromising for your freedom. And I don't want to go too much or too immediately in the present situation, in the present predicament. Um, but it is um, a present situation and the present predicament. Um, but he said, you can do anything. And that's in a way, um, 
very closely related to the way you think of the world. Yeah, I think it has. It often, it very often has to do with, oh, to, just to go back to say, oh, you say, you sometimes you have people looking at art or, or reading a book and they go, and there's that moment before words find their structure and people they are, and then they say, but, but that's how I would, I mean, I could have done that. And what actually is said, if they're not being cynical, what they are in fact saying is that they feel that they had an emotional need, which in that moment was reflected. It was as if the book they were reading listened to what they were about to say. It is the thought was sent to you from the future and it put words on a feeling that you had, could be a trauma, but it could also be not a trauma, but a, a feeling that you were sort of working on, and it typically could be in the body even, right? And suddenly you have this situation, <gasps> the book, the painting, the artwork, the eyes, is reading me. I am, in fact, being listened to. And it's so liberating when you are encountering culture and you realize, wow, I am actually not the consumer, the object, uh, I am the subject. And I'm not alone. No, and I'm, I'm being not listened. alone, which is I'm, terribly important. Yes, I'm interconnected. You know, James Baldwin once said, you, you, you feel an emotion, you think you're the only one to feel it, and then you start to read. And as you start to read, you realize that the originality you thought was your own emotion alone mm -hmm. is shared by so many people. And not being alone, I mean, the work of art as being as a form of accompaniment in our journey is tremendously important mm -hmm. and makes you a participant in, in the way you see it. Absolutely, and that's, that's why the cultural sector is so trust, um, well, enjoys the loyalty or the trust of the civic sector because the politicians they mismanage their ability to listen to people. They just tell people that they're not good enough, or they're not, you know, so. And, and, you know, the people who succeed, or at least to create the impression that they're listening, and we have to give the populists, uh, you know, uh, that, that they have created the illusion that they are in fact listening to people. They are emotionally um, activating people's uh, desire to be heard. Um, so it's very ambiguous. Obviously, I would like to think that listening or emotional activity should be balanced out with a fair amount of data, like a sense, you know, interesting uh, or you information. Know, that, yeah, like like about the climate change, for instance, right? But I don't think data alone will tell us the full narrative because it's so far away. Right? So data, we know, you know, I am. I'm less likely to become engaged because it is out of my emotional uh, sort of, um, what do you call this, sort of this, this uh, alert system. But if I know there's a hurricane tomorrow, I'll you know, go home and try to protect whatever, uh, have a house or something, and, then, and in that way, but that's tomorrow, but something 20, 30, 50 years from now, you go like, hmm. Or 10,000 years from now. Yeah, well, that's uh, like even beyond. Yeah. But that's interesting. So how do we activate knowledge, data, and 
action, I mean physical knowledge. So, so you've asked that question to everybody here a few times, and maybe I can ask you how. Well, I think it is, for instance, by showing that public space can host a gathering, a circle of ice, a kind of parliament, if you want. Think about Thingvellir in Iceland, right? The thing, Folketinget, the thing, the idea of the parliament of reality, the place where we meet to constitute what is reality about. Latour wrote about the relativity of things, and this idea of giving an embodied experience to a to knowledge. Let me just touch on Bruno Latour, the great Bruno Latour, just because it has to do with Denmark. He came to my studio in Berlin, and we had students from Paris and students from Berlin. What he did, he reenacted Connie Hedegaard's closing speech of uh, COP15. Was it COP15? The Danish COP, where, where, um, you know, where Lars Løkke was there and all of that. And, and, um, and I see we have one of the negotiators uh, here tonight. Um, great. Uh, so we have very important people here. No, no, no. He is a, a f uh, <laughs> had we had he been important, we wouldn't have this. Comment. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. Listen, no. What is interesting is that no, no. Latour's argument was let's repeat the, the later half of Connie Hilgo's speech, which was very sad, and it was a big, it was a, it was a global trauma, right? And, 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 and Connie, as we all, and we, I totally uh, admire and, and really, uh, truly uh, love Connie's uh, effort for climate and so on and so on. Anyway, the closing speech, Latour had the idea of reenacting the speech, but changing the last part into a success. Sort of just pretending... A different, a, a different ending. Yeah, and, the, and it was like a group therapy for the students, and it was so interesting because it was the weirdest thing to hear the manuscript of Connie Hilgård, and you, of course you sort of heard her. Latour, in his terrible uh, French, was reading uh, Connie's uh, eloquent words, except that the change was different, and a lot of the students just started to cry, because it was a physical experience. But this very banal reenactment, and I'm just saying, so there is such a, uh, you know, a resourceful, um, an interesting way of dealing with how do we take knowledge and turn it into action. That's one way, reenacting and re sort of, you can go back in time and change the past narrative. Obviously, you can't change the result, but you can empower people to say, well, you know, this is how it could have been. It was very empowering. You know, um, I'm, I'm tempted to read that, that quotation I read to you backstage of Bruno Latour when I uh, very innocently asked you if, you if you knew him, just because it's, a, it's such an interesting statement, mm -hmm. more of a political statement, but a very interesting statement, um, where he says, what matters now, this, he wrote this right after the election, what matters now is finding a way to bring together two kinds, the American election. What matters now is finding a way to bring together two kinds of migrants, those forced by the ecological mutation to find a new world by crossing borders, and those forced to do the same without even having moved, and whom borders can no longer protect. If we fail to give shape to this new earth and to reassure those migrating to it, 
it will never be attractive enough to counterbalance the opposing forces of those still dreaming of the ancient globe or of the ancient nation. In which case, one thing is certain. In 2017, it will be France's turn to throw in the towel. Heavy, huh? Heavy, yeah. Maybe too heavy? No, no, it's great. I mean, obviously, he's a great... Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a proactive uh, social scientist or, or sociologist, I think he is. And there's a few points. One is, of course, that the questions of migration, and in Denmark, we call migration refugees. Um, so, And you've they, worked yourself. Yes, and, and the thing is now, obviously, there's a handful of crises, uh, sort of hard to understand really fully. But the truth is that the, uh, you know, the geopolitical or the climate-related re climate refugee question is already very imminent, even though um, po politicians try to keep the questions apart. But, of course, the truth is that we are only seeing uh, the beginning of a great really great challenge uh, 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 with regards to the, um, what we, I think, now call climate justice. I mean, the fact that we are going to have a, a much higher impact on some areas in the world uh, with regards to um, the global warming, and that is going to create a whole other level of uh, migration. And the um, lack of successful handling the current refugee crisis is, of course, only going to indicate that there is a much larger challenge uh, ahead of us. So um, only four weeks ago, I was lucky that uh, the great um, climate sort of protagonist, Mary Robinson, the former um, president of Ireland, was passing through Berlin on her way to the Security Council in Munich. And I immediately tried to network and find out who do I know that knows her. And I was lucky to invite her to my studio to uh, see if I could get a foot in the door for the climate uh, COP in Bonn for the Fiji Islands, that is Climate 23. So here you have it, how do I then work? I really try to get my foot in the policy sector, not, and, and to, you know, I totally respect people who have great policy skills. But anyway, so I, get, I finally use the so-called magic that you were talking about, about my artist studio, and say, oh, Mary Robert, why don't I host an artist studio dinner for you? And the truth is, it's just really a dinner. So here, here we have it. But she uh, didn't know that yet. No, no, but it's, al it's also fair enough to say, well, we are also uh, special. I don't want to flush out the baby with the bathwater, but my point is really to see how do I now get involved with the COP23 in Bonn? And, uh, and, and I just like her so much. So she talks about climate justice. So where is art in all of that? So I throw a climate dinner. You saw the kitchen, so I love cooking, not me, but I love eating, let's say it this way. So the, this, we have a great, good cookbook out now anyway. And so we do a carbon neutral dinner for her. So 40, I invite 40 sort of people from the cultural sector, and she's not really a very strong person in the cultural sector. She's, a, she's really a policy uh, person. And climate justice is a very interesting thing, and she's pushing for legislative effort in climate justice. Climate dinner, you know, a carbon-neutral dinner, except the olive oil and the butter, it was all carbon-neutral. It's not the greatest dinner, 
but it tastes so. It's, but it's still interesting, you know. So we can't really cook. So pretty raw, you know, carrots and uh, and and all from the seed, all from within bicycle distance to my studio. Sort of limits it. Of course, no meat. Uh, like meat is like totally no go. So we are down to a few sort of diary um, products and, and some raw carrots and so on. So and and it was amazing. Uh, so the cooks are amazing. Great, uh, really a great dinner and very touching. We ate 40 people, a total neutral, and of course the next day she said, we must do something in Bonn with art and culture. And um, it's really, um, I mean, I, I enjoy the luxury of being working in great museums and galleries and so on, and I, that's this, that is sort so of the So this is how thing. you get under the skin of the politicians, because I know that you also have worked with our former uh, mayor, um, Bloomberg. You've, you've, uh, you've had, you try to, whenever you can, have an effect on policymakers. Now, it's, what's interesting about Bloomberg is that he's the head of the Serpentine Museum, with whom you've also worked. Yeah, he's like a patron for yeah. them, but, but Bloomberg, I was, I was lucky. But, but, but I, 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 I try to use the trust that people have in the cultural sector. And that's what I mean. I say I'm an artist. And then people say, wow, that's great. <laughs> So, and, but the, the truth is, it wasn't. It was Bloomberg who came to me, um, and uh, that worked the other way around. He had a vision for his city, which I think was very impressive. And he asked me if I could, you know, consider uh, working with him on, on a large-scale project. Um, so it was actually his. Which um, came about or not? It did indeed. Yeah, it was uh, this. Well, he asked me what should we do and uh, what could sort of match the scale of Manhattan and. Um, and he, um, you know, he had a lot of visions and ideas, and he was very involved himself, also paid for a, part, a fair part of it yeah. himself. And, uh, and he, um, so he later on st stayed in touch, and I'm actually still um, in contact with him, uh, occasionally trying to convince him to get more involved with art, and occasionally he does, not necessarily me, but he's very committed to culture in general. Um, some six years ago, around the time of the London Olympics, I had the idea of doing a little handheld solar, solar panel powered little lamp that I actually have with me. Yeah, bring it. I always have it with me. Also, this one here. In Denmark, I've shown it so much. People are, by now, they're really tired of it. But anyway, for the but few there, there foreigners. There are all kinds of people looking at us online, so they, they probably haven't oh, seen thank it. Thank you. So, yeah. they, so show it, and then let's show also images 31 to 35 yeah. as it's, we talk it's about It's very it. simple. Solar panel and LED, right? Small battery inside. Put it in the sun. Can I touch it? I haven't actually. Well, you can actually have it, Paul. Really? Promo Thank you. Yeah, promotionally speaking. <laughs> uh, Thank you very no, much. No, it's a little sculpture. It's a little work of art. Very, very um, much. So. Anyway, just to bring Bloomberg back in the equation, I showed it to him knowing that he's an engineer. I am not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and he was so kind to um, you know, express some trust. And the, the thing is here, what's the, um, how should I say it? How does it feel to hold hands with the sun, considering the Arctic, right? And obviously, the idea of climate justice and Mary, the whole point here is I think that solar power is not just 
like this project addressing climate access in areas where there's no, no uh, energy access in areas where there's no energy, such as Sub-Saharan Africa, where we work with this. But it's also a thing in, northern, in the Northern Hemisphere, like in Denmark, where we need to make tangible, how does energy feel like? In Denmark, energy just comes out of the plug in the wall, like in America. And we really don't have any strong idea of, does that mean somewhere coal or oil or is it wind? In Denmark, it's actually not so bad. It's not, and, and, you know, so most likely, or there's a fair chance that you actually have windmills at the other end of the plug in the wall. But still, we don't fully We don't understand. know where things no, come from. Yeah. It's abstract. This is to make it less abstract. But it also has, I mean, if we look at these images, 31 through 35, you might comment on, on how this was also used for... Yeah, that's a mo mobile phone charger. Let's begin with 31. Yeah. Yeah, doing your homework. So, sitting in front of a little petroleum lamp or kerosene lamp, the fumes will be right up in your face. And one of the primary disease-related uh, problems in, in the sub-Saharan Africa is respiratory-related, like lungs. So it's, you know, sitting next to a kerosene lantern is like smoking 40 cigarettes a day. That's one way. Doing your homework with this makes you study more and makes your eye work better and your lungs not become sick. So you could talk about the sort of the sequence but if I jump a little bit, what I think is important is that it's actually beautiful. So it's not just something functional. So the narrative, there's the disease, education. If you go on a little bit, there's that kiosk, keeping your kiosk open. Go a few, if you go a few pictures further. 32. Um, do you see that, that woman? That she makes more money. If she makes more money, her kids are more likely to go to school. Maybe the boy is already in school, maybe the girl is not in school, and so on and so forth. But to be totally honest, I'm not here to tell people how to do with their kids and how what to, to do live. and so on. Yeah. No, I'm here to tell where we are in the same boat, not just uh, east-west, but north-south, global north, global south. We are equally responsible and we are equally sort of uh, challenged by the fact and the truth is, with climate justice, we're not equally challenged because I will, you know, put a pedestal under the house uh, by the time there is a flood, where some people uh, won't be able to do that. So, so there is a there is a greater narrative in this, and that is how do we find a positive way of talking about this? How do we prevent a doom and gloom evening tonight? Right? It's not so easy. No. So, uh, how can we be? It's not a loss of life quality to get involved with the climate challenge. Right? It's not, it's not, how do we actually say, well, it's maybe a higher life quality. And it's not so easy because it's very comfortable driving. Uh, I know myself. It's very comfortable flying. Uh, and I'm like the worst. Can I say one number? 280,000 these are now in Africa. They are funded by the 220,000 that we sold in the Global North. Higher price, lower price. Bloomberg sort of took out a bit of... Uh, anyway, 280,000. It only really... Said, this is interesting because I never talk about data. 280,000 saves a family $1 a week. 
I'll do it a little fast now. One dollar a week. Take is your time. No, it's fifty dollars because it's it's kind of data, and I'm I'm also sort of learning it, right? Anyway, fifty dollars a year. Why one dollar a week? Fifty dollars a year. There's a four-year warranty on this. Probably it's five. Let's say four. Four times fifty dollars is uh, two hundred. So far, so good, right? Two hundred and eighty thousand times two hundred is fifty-five million dollars, which were not spent on kerosene and was released into other <coughs> spending. So it's not like people made the money, but they were able to spend that money on something else. $55 million is exactly 55 million liters, approximately, of petroleum. 55 million liters of petroleum is, and now I get a little wobbly here, but, but I think it is 55 million is 50,000 cubic tons of petroleum. When you have a tanker, you, you count cubic tons, you don't count liters, of course. Huh? It's either 5,000 or 50,000. Point is, it's one tanker, right? It's one tanker. So the continent of Africa has two tankers a day over the year, except one day, there's only one tanker. So think of the pebbles on the beach. Think about crowdfunding, thinking about you know, the action that lays in the room and not in the States. Think about the power in the room versus here, right? Think about the decentralization and, and all these sort of crowdfunding things. So with this, one ship of crude oil was less brought to Africa. And that is exactly uh, 100,000 tons of CO2 emissions with this project on the continent alone. Right? So, so it's funny that this tiny, tiny little you know, uh, online, littlesun.com, uh, 20 some euro, 22 euro, I think, and so on. If you buy it here, you can also buy it here and there. And, and so on. With that little project, we actually did quite well. It's not so bad. I mean, I'm normally not the data sort of person, but I have some great people working on it. And it also created 20 jobs in Berlin and about 500 jobs uh, in the continent, on the continent of, of Africa. You know, in, in, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's, I, I was going to say, one should, thank you. No, when I was going to say, um, it, it does, I think it makes, at, at least it makes me feel two things. One is an enormous amount of uh, respect for what you've, you've managed to do. It also makes me think, you know, what have I done? Uh, or, you know, there's a lot to do. There's a, there's a lot that needs to be done. And I, I, there's a, a, you, you've, you said somewhere, we're not going to solve the Ukraine crisis. We're not going to solve ISIS. But in theory, if everyone has a light at home and can study, then you have less chaos in the world. And I love the world, the word that comes right after that then you have less chaos in the world, comma, probably. Yeah, but I'm also, I'm careful because the truth is I'm a layman in all of this. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, well, how does it feel? And how do we become confident or, you know, how do we feel confident, comfortable about you know the thing the, the things that turn turn us into action. 
then I, I'm, I'm, you know, the truth is 280,000 sold in Africa. The truth is like a tiny drop, considering that, for instance, in Ethiopia, there's like six million kids in undergrad school. Like, so it's like, so I'm, I'm, the way I see it, I've failed miserably still, still I'm so. But, no, I think it's, um, we're only just beginning, and, and I, I'm really also quite optimistic with regards to, um, you know, how young people see the world and the kind of energy there is in it. So I'm actually not so pessimistic. So, so say something about that. The possible, the possible. Yeah, the, yeah, that 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 you're rather optimistic about how young people see the world. I mean, I think a lot of people here would be would be relieved to hear that that you feel this way. No, but I think. And, and, and what, what you know, not relieved. It's, that was a very silly, foolish thing to say. What I mean is, is. Um, interested in, in why, despite so many naysayers, you don't feel that way, given the context that you understand well of what young people are confronted with, I imagine. Yeah, well... And the mediation I'm, through all these yeah. tools we have. Well, I take my positive uh, sort of um, argument a little bit from uh, the great, and who only just passed away, Hans Rosling from the Kaulinska Institute. And he, as you know, he talked about the fact that, well, it has never been better to be African. Despite what we see in the headlines up here, up here meaning in Denmark, the trends are quite good, as I think Clinton put it, right? So headlines are bad, trends are quite good. So poverty has never been better, employment, education, women and uh, girls in education, and so on and so forth. So by all means, Despite the Northern Africa crisis and and the and and and, and so on, it has never been better. Right? Boko Haram truly is only a tiny fraction in uh, north of uh, Nigeria. Nigeria is uh, in is soon to is soon to have the same population as America, but there's so much space. So there's a few and 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 you know and you and, and Gosling went on. China has lifted out what is it 200 million people out of poverty in 20 years. So like Trump is like a tiny bump on, compared to the amazing success that China has had. Now, obviously, we need to work on human rights and the general you know, growth of prosperity and success of the world as such. But by all means, the world has, it's hard to believe, has never been better. It's just not very good to be European for the time being. But my God, <laughs> Europe had 2,000 years at the table. Maybe it's now it's time to be Africa. Maybe now Europe can just sort of take it easy for a while and sort of sort out the populism and the sort of very reactionary type of uh, evolution that it's moving into. And now it's just great to be uh, in... I can see see the headline of today's conversation. It's great to be African. Yeah, but so I'm just saying that things are just a little more complex, right? And and obviously... And there's not a reason for despair. You know, this is very, very much what Chomsky said the other day. He said, you know, there's a lot of reason for hope. A lot of reason for hope. He said, you know, I'm old enough to have lived through the Great Depression. And we had more hope during that time, though there were less good reasons to have hope. And so we, we must find ways now. I mean, if you lose that, you lose everything. So the only thing I think which is really important is the growth of population needs to be met with education so that people, and for instance in Africa, are educated so they can do their own business, so they don't rely on aid 
from from uh, from the global north and if they have a solid business and they can develop prosperity they also will not migrate you know and 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 they will in their own uh, terms deal with the climate challenge that is going to be i think a pretty severe um, challenge uh, but and that's why the climate justice and 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 that's why this is not an aid project but a this one when i point yeah. it's not his watch but this one it's a social business it's about job and employment and and so on and so forth i i can feel that Lisa is probably getting terribly anxious that we're not talking more about the Arctic. So we're, we're going to move along and, and because I could right. talk to you about all these matters for a very long time. And um, I, I do know that there, there seems to be a theme to our evening yes. tonight, even if Thank you. digression is the sunshine of narrative. But it's related. It is related. Climate so, justice. Yes. And, and we'll, we'll get back to that as well. Um, let's look at images 11 and 12 and have you comment a little bit about them. Oh, this is 11. I kept some of the eyes that we had in Paris and, uh, and um, I, you know, I put some ink on it and I let the eyes melt on a piece of paper. You know, small. It's it's one and a half meter high and a meter or so wide. Um, it's a watercolor painted by the ice itself. It sort of looks like a sort of a. Do you know the mud that is under the ice once the ice is sort of um, pulling back? So it's sort of a self-made painting. Or I mean, the ice melted. And that's how it looked, yeah. I saw one in New York, in, in one of the back rooms of the gallery, which was also tremendously yeah. beautiful. It's, a, what, it's very call, beautiful. Yeah, we call it back room art. Yeah, yeah. back room art, yeah. yeah. Oh, I need so then, something about the climate. They say 12. We take, um, see now this is, this is fun because it's a block of ice. The Presence of Absence, is that the name of it? Yeah, Presence of Absence. It's a block of ice that I, poured concrete over. I, I mean, I, when I made a box, a wooden box, and then I put the ice in the wooden box and I put concrete. You know, the concrete that we use for our, to sort of strengthen our society. Mm. So it's like, they have like the old version of culture, nature. So the ice goes away, as you can see, it melts, and it leaves this lovely little void. And it allows you, and the, and the truth is, this is a model of a building Oh, it was an idea. I was trying to turn uh, a project in Ilulisat in Greenland. Is a, a lot of the Danes they don't even know Ilulisat is in Greenland. Oh, they know it's in Greenland, but they don't know where it is. It's on east. It's over towards Canada. And no offense. So anyway, the um, Ilulisat is a fantastic city. It's where all the heads of states go when they want their photo taken with the Great Glacier in the background, so it's this amazing, most amazing uh, UNESCO Heritage Park and so on. So I proposed um, a group who was interested in building a museum, why don't we just put all the chunks of ice and pour concrete over it? And I love the messiness of all that concrete, I mean, they will never get it away uh, also. And don't you have that picture of that model of that building? I mean, let me, should, I, should I check? Sure. Oh my God, you have amazing stuff here. Oh yeah. Um, Anyway, but you can imagine, imagine now this is a house and a person is really only you know, walking into that space. And wouldn't it be nice, because for me it's about, well, how does it feel to be the ice? How does it feel to be, to feel the, to be the ice? Yeah, to become the ice or to be icing. I mean, to, to, to actually uh, 
be in the negative space of the eyes is not quite enough, but to be, to become. Do you know there's a theoretician called Timothy Morton? It's called Triple O, or Object-Oriented Ontology. He's a professor of philosophy at Rice. It's a kind of Latour. Uh, I don't, that, I don't, but what, what, what? So it's like a uh, Latour extreme version. So he's a great friend of Björk, so he's quite famous in the, here in Scandinavia. So he's a kind of uh, uh, sort of eco-activist. Anyway, he thinks that objects have agency. It's a great line of uh, theory, not a very welcomed by the, um, you know, by the serious philosophers. They kind of don't like him so much, but he's a fantastic guy. So he talks about the difference of looking at eyes, itself, and and the, he thinks that eyes has, he doesn't say personality, you know, it's not like eyes, but eyes is also an object in the world that has a trajectory and it has a certain intentionality. Eyes is icing, it's. You know, it's, that's it's, what it does. Yes, that's what it does. The table is tabling, the glass is glassing, the little sun is shining. And what, are, what are we doing? Well, we are just one other object in his sort of, sort of ecosystem of thinking. And he's quite remarkable. So he has a blog for the young people of you who follow blogs. So Timothy Morton have a blog, uh, which I really recommend. Just Google it. And it's called Timothy Morton oh, blog. Yeah, it's called something called something. with the ecology. Um, but he's very famous. You'll find it. But 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 he's and and and. Um, but it's so interesting because it it goes back, I think, to an early stage in, in, in your own thinking, which was your, your discovery of phenomenology and your discovery of how we look at objects and how we perceive objects in the world. And I, I'm always reminded of you know, that seminal moment when Raymond Aron comes back from Berlin, having been with Husserl, and says to Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, having an apricot, uh, I think it's an apricot drink, he says, you know, if you were in Germany now, this would constitute the beginning of your philosophy. You would begin to analyze the apricotness of the apricot drink in this glass. And that is, in, in, a, in a sense, what you're trying, what you're trying to, to make us do. It's trying to approach these objects in this kind of nearly fundamental way. The ice is icing, the glass is glassing, and we are yeah, but there is we're a, talking. There's a important there's an important thing though. Um, being in Scandinavia, we of course we we can't just can't stop talking about phenomenology. And there's a really the great dancer Harvey here, as we who dance thinks of. I mean, he really I think is the sort of lead, the sort of leader of phenomenology in the the Husserl, like Mr. Husserl, right? There's of course there's a, a couple of Swedes too, but that's pretty much uh, besides a few German. That's pretty much it. But the point is here: Latour went to a great length criticizing the phenomenologists, and I went through a transformation. To be completely honest, because the phenomenologists they were so insisting on all agency being in the subject, and the object was just this kind of things you could touch out in the world. But the truth is that gives very little you know, space to all the objects. So the Latourians and the kind of, uh, and I don't, again, I'm a layman, but try to listen to how Timothy Morton fiercely criticizes the phenomenologists for being the pacifists. It's interesting, it's very interesting. And Latour is totally with him on that. And um, 
And of course, I'm interested. You mean it's just description and not action? No, but he, the thing is, I, as an artist, make artworks, right? Boom, here's an artwork. There's that concrete block with that ice thing and so on. And, you know, is it now a passive thing that I can walk over to and then my subjective contract activates it? Or is it already active whether I'm in the room or not? Is it on its way to do something? And? That's a much nicer idea. Well, of course, I would like to subscribe to this idea that the objects that I... I'm lucky to do, but any object, really, the chair, the stage, it has a, you know, a totally strong trajectory. And these people are, I think, the foundation of the new generation of climate uh, activists. Aristotle spoke about the fact that we were, we were superior uh, as human beings because we were mobile. Unlike plants, we were not defined by a place where we had to stay. We could move around. You arrive there, and as you move, the world really changes with your mobility. And you begin to understand, as you go behind, how you've done it. So there's something magical that happens, but then there's a demystification that you make happen. And it reminds me of two magicians who you may or may not know. And if you don't know them, you should. Um, they perform mainly in Las Vegas, one of the great American cities, as you know. I just recently went to Las Vegas with my oldest son, who's a, nearly a professional magician, a close-up magician. And so we went to Las Vegas because I wanted to show him a little bit of what makes America great. And so we went to, we went to the Bellagio Hotel um, where for 22 extra dollars I could get a room with a view of the fountain. You can't open any of the windows, but if you go on channel 26 uh, in your room and look on television, you can see the fountain very clearly and the music also. So that was a, a great advantage. Um, <laughs> and money well worth uh, spending. But we went to see these magicians called Penn Pen and Teller. Do you know about them? No, certainly They're not. They're great, Penn and Teller, among the very, very greatest magicians alive today. And what they do in every single one of their shows is bring somebody on stage and blindfold them. And then the public sees how they do what they do. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, in a way, it demystifies that moment of magic, mm -hmm. but in a very interesting way, because you participate. And I, 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 I would imagine that not too many people have made a comparison between Penn and Teller and your work, but I, I think there is something that happens. You go around those, those uh, sphere balls, if we can see them again, um, that's number 36, and as you go around, there's a black part on the back, mm -hmm. and you begin to understand how the light goes through. And also it makes you think also of, of an eyeball. At least it made me think of an eyeball. I recently had eye problems. I sort of lost vision for a brief moment in one of my eyes, and I went to the doctor, and much like those spots in, in, in the room there, he showed me my eye and showed me how I had had a retinal problem. And you begin to, you begin to well, I, I began to really understand 
Richter's work, you know, particularly the, the work where he, you have faces where you don't see anything. It made me think that having a, a physical ailment made me understand works of art better. But here, if you go in the back, and you might explain this to us, you begin to understand how you've done it. The same way you begin to understand in the room in the back how you've done those incredible circles. I'm sorry, I spoke too long. No, no, it's 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 a, it's a, it's good. I I mean, people are fundamentally not stupid, and it's I think always better to show them that you know that they are really smart up front. So I always believed in disguising the mechanics of creating a spectacle or a sort of a phenomena. So you might as well just put the machine that creates what you're looking at right next to people because it's not. You know, knowing that it's a recreation, knowing that it's not Connie Hilgo is not gonna take away the emotional sort of uh, convergence. So it's, I think it's, it's um, a the typical thing is of course that sometimes, and uh, you know, whether Las Vegas or not, they think people are stupid and then they just don't tell them how they do things. And then people are becoming, uh, how should I say, you're pushing people into becoming consumers rather than trusting them to become producers. Um, Actors. Yeah, co because for me it's about reality. It's about do we trust society to actually be a force? Um, and I would, I, would, I would opt for that. I mean, uh, clearly I wouldn't opt for the politicians alone, but we need them also, and they're kind of a part of society. And, and, but generally speaking, I think not talking down to people is a much more productive strategy, and that seems to be what goes on. Talking about Las Vegas, I actually today, and I should advertise that, I have two things to advertise. I opened up a work of art in the Danish, uh, and obviously a lot nicer, no offense, version of Las Vegas. It's not really Las Vegas, because there's no gambling. Well, there's online, actually, but Tivoli. Tivoli. I made a work of art for Tivoli that opened today. So it's not very big, and it is along Jose Andersen's Boulevard, next to the town halls. I'm very honored to be sort of the, the, the sort of the relation, this zone between sort of Tivoli and town hall. Do you see how parliamentary thinking is always a part of it? But nevertheless, enough about Las Vegas. The other way, just before I forget it, some friends. Never enough about Las Vegas, but. Go. Just before I forget it, the, some good friends, um, and, and because um, I want to have time enough for you to create a great fanfare towards the end, I just want to mention there is, do you know there is a, something called the, the, the Climate March? And on the 29th yeah. of yeah. Uh, April, yeah. everywhere in the world, it's also in Copenhagen, so go to climatemarch.probably.org or .net, uh, no, Climate March Copenhagen, or Copiho, right? Dot, something, right? Orc, probably. Um, and then on the 20th, so it's a 100-day, I mean, it's also a 100-day of Trump, 29th, so but I think it's a little more than that. It's a, the, the climate march, so it's a great thing in Copenhagen, and, you know, it's a nice thing because it's very emotional. Suddenly, you, because we all know everything about, I mean, I think we at least subconsciously know everything about the Arctic, right? I did not know, it's actually, once it's melted, which is pretty much now, it's actually three kilometers deep, the ocean. Minik told me, Minik Rosen, it's not like the Antarctic, which is actually a solid, right? But anyway, so climate march, and that's a great way of sort of 
sort of as a collective experience turning thinking into doing. So advertisement is over now. Um, you know, I, I think we, I, I would do badly not, not showing some of the images that exist in this library on the Arctic and some of the images that exist at the New York Public Library on the Arctic. And it's, you know, I was asking, as I said, I'm, I'm not a librarian, nobody, nobody's perfect. So I asked some of my colleagues, you know, how come we have these Arctic collections? Well, it's interesting, you know, what ends up in a collection. I mean, obviously, museums, which we didn't have a time, time to talk about, and which I know you're very interested in, uh, the politics of museums, and libraries, which also have, a, a, you know, they are, they are the grandchildren of imperialism, and they, they collect things for all kinds of reasons. But we, we have a very substantial collection, as does uh, the Sorte Diamant, or the Black Diamond or the Royal Library of Denmark. And let's look at some of those images. If we could go through the images 19 to um, 26, please. And I can say something about those images. For instance, um, I have a text here that I... Um, was told maybe to read because I, I don't really know what we're seeing. The Greenland school teacher and Arctic explorer Jürgen Brunlund participated in the Denmark expedition to Northeast Greenland in 1906-1908. He and two members of the expedition, the leader Ludwig Milius Eriksen and Niels Peter Hug Hagen, Died traveling back from the Independence Fjord. Brunland died last at the 79 Fjord, named after the 79th latitude, in November 1907. Mm. And then when we get to image 25. Remarkable, right? Isn't it? These <laughs> photographs are just extraordinary, I find. It's funny that these pictures were all taken with the impression in mind that this it's was this this is something that would you know be able to eradicate humankind. You know, all the paintings also from that period was always about some person being eaten by an iceberg or some ship being crushed by the ice. And now it's the other way around. We right. are crushing. But so these photos are. Um, they're interesting, right? But it's somehow today we are, uh, you know, we are going to see the ice bears not eating us anymore. And it's, that would make me think that it's because we have a substantially different relationship to nature and to the sublime. But there is no nature, as I said. The ice bear is going to die before it even gets to us because it can't swim so long. No, I mean, just as the concept. There was a great show at the Louisiana Museum called The Arctic, and it started with this idea that, ooh, the Arctic is like this amazing force and so on. But it's not. It's very vulnerable. It's, you know, it's passing out as we speak. It's, it's uh, now I'm getting into the... No, 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 I know, no. Positive, huh? no, 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 no. <laughs> but let me say, this the, is so the, exciting. The, the, we, we can be positive and depressed. There's, I think there's another little advertisement. So, as you know, the great speaker soon in this series, Henrik Sachsgren, has an amazing book. Incredible. Yes, amazing. He book. came in the backstage there. It is just 
unbelievable. And it puts this into perspective. Yeah. But let me just also say, I think the library, this, the fact that we have a, a vault in which these photos are sitting. So now what are we doing when we, you show it to us like this? So, that, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in, um, are we now traveling back in time looking at this or are the photos coming to us? That's uh, say more because that, that interests me greatly. Yeah, and I think we know from recent uh, sort of methodology in history, and I, I would assume the librarian sort of uh, sort of theory is the same. You don't read an old book by going back to when it was written. You don't look at an old painting by thinking that you are sort of hanging out with Gauguin in Tahiti or Haiti, uh, you know, and so on. Oh, Tahiti. Oh, was it not, yeah, not Haiti. No, no, no. no Haiti. What you obviously is doing is the painting has been on a journey. See, now that's Timothy Morton, and you are meeting up. You are on a journey too, not just to Denmark, but in life in general. And this photo has been traveling for quite a while, 1900 and something, and today you met up. And the situation was very contemporary. It was not an old photo. It was made a long time ago, but it is a new photo. And that's very much about what is the role of the libraries in our world today. Are we thinking of a library as, oh, I'm going to travel into the past? Am I just going into an archive? Yes, and the, the classical objectifying sort of... Uh, and, you know, Denmark had just had that recent discussion about should we say sorry to the, to the sort of former uh, colonies? The, uh, and... and um, and, 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 and is the re past relative to the present? Right? It's very interesting. It's an unbelievably interesting question. I, of course, think that the past is as relative as the future because our perspective keeps changing. And that gives agency to the future for the library. The library, these photos, are in fact an opportunity to travel into the future as well. It's a little more work than just consuming them and saying, wow, that's great, a nice ship. That's, that's a nice ship, let's move on. Yeah. yeah. And of course, we need the assistance of the great scientists who runs the library to learn how to use the library as a proactive rather than an, a retroactive. And how to look at it. And I mean, one of the roles, as I say, I'm not a librarian, but one of the roles of librarians is to help us sieve through the incredible amount of information. I mean, the gluttony of information. And I know that that is something that you are also very interested in, is how do we, how do we make sense of all of this if we have so much? How do we make sense of how to navigate if the only way we really know how to get around is through our GPS? That's why I actually thought, well, I didn't do it because I, bringing one thing was, an, I thought of bringing a compass. Well, there's a wonderful compass in the, not a compass, but a wonderful north-south piece of driftwood in the gallery in New York. Yeah, I love compasses because what I think is happening and the discussion about libraries or artworks or, or, or Greenland for that matter is very much about navigation. And do we, uh, have we lost sense of the grid in which we can navigate, or is it actually, can you generate navigational skills having gone blind once? And I think we can. So I'm not, that's an optimistic thing, right? So I actually don't think, especially with young people, I think they're great navigators. 
They're very disembodied, too much on social media and all of that. But generally speaking, I'm trustful with regards to the sort of capacity to navigate. Let's look at um, well. Let's look at image twenty-five. I just want to read um, what what was on that um, on that document. It's Brunland's diary. Do you know who Brunland was? Because I don't really. It was found beside his body. It was kept in Greenlandic, but has but the moving farewell note is in Danish. It tells of the fate of the, his companions and explains that he cannot go on himself due to frostbitten. Oh, now I know who it is, yes. You do? Yes, um, I think so. Died 79, I mean, I read a little bit before who he was. Died 79, fjord after attempt. This is, I'm reading to you what you're seeing. Return home across the inland ice in the months of November. I come here by waning moonlight and could no more from frost-bitten feet and because of the darkness. The reason bodies of others are in the middle of the fjord in front of glacier, circa two and a half miles. Hagen died 15 November and Milius about 10 days later. Jürgen Brunland. Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's how scary is that? But if I, if I, and I looked to Munich because he is to a great extent my compass indeed. Uh, so Munich Rosen. And the, the, what I believe it was is that our expedition was lost like totally and utterly. And much later, they, were these, they found the expedition and uh, there were some quite famous photos from that event. And I'm, I don't know, something with a balloon. Anyway, dr big dramatic. There's a great Danish artist who I think has also worked. I'm, it might have been the same, but a fantastic Arctic uh, research done by Joachim Kuster, the amazing Danish artist who has also done great, more conceptual photos in Greenland, in fact. But, um, but uh, the fact that you would have the narrative of the little group becoming extinct is almost seeing the end of the world. And then, I don't remember, but 30 years later they found these, yeah. no, and the film, and, they, and there was still something on the film, and it was just people going insane. Kind of a, um, yeah. I will, I will wind down quickly. I want to, to, to show you also some images from the New York Public Library, which will bring, as it were, will, will be pontificating in the true Latin sense, will pontifex, will build a bridge between Copenhagen and New York. But before we do that, I want to see what you're reading for the moment, or at least on your Instagram, there are some photographs of some books that are put, uh, maybe they're not posted by you, but it, it's interesting. So if we can look at image 16, and there's one in particular that I'd like to focus my attention on. Because I think what Rebecca Solnit says is quite fascinating. So could we have image number 16? Well, that isn't. Oh, it, is, it isn't image number 16 I'm looking for, but image number 18, forgive me, my mistake. Here we are. Do you actually post those? Oh yes, but I pretty much post anything. So I mean, if any of you are on Instagram, uh, that's my Instagram, yeah, please go follow it. You know, that's how, what it's all about, right? As many followers as possible. But you see that before you talk about, um, oh my God, I was so afraid you're gonna choose some books that I did not know. But actually these ones I do know, lucky me. Did you read them? Uh, I, I, I kind of, 
flip through them. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, one of the uh, one of the programs. No, but I let did, me say. Oh, okay. You, that's you the say book. Something. That's the guy I was talking about. Dark ecology, and I think that's the name. Is that the name of the yeah, blog? Yeah, Morton. Yeah. There he is. Is that the name of the blog? Timothy yeah. Morton's blog. Yeah, I'm not sure. No, it's not uh, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, that's the Morton guy. No, I, was I, I know about. it's. I know it's em embarrassing sometimes. Uh, no, you no, know, it's when, great. And do you know Lakoff? I do, yeah, I do very, very, Fantastic, very. Yes. What interests you about him? I'm well, not sure I'm, that anybody it's more like behavioral psychology and, you know, uh, turning. Elections. And yes, and, and uh, I'm very interested in um, decision making and, uh, you know, decision making processes and uh, are we aspirational or affect, do we use our affective system to make decisions or are we data driven? Legaf did some very interesting work on how to. You know, talk to a pe people who disagree with you. And I was looking into, uh, I'm trying to optimize, considering that I would like to be better at policy, I'm trying to train my skill talking to people who totally disagree with me. It's hard, no? No, actually, it turns out to be not so hard. Oh, really? Yeah, Tell but, me. Uh, but Give me a that, tip. Well, first of all, um, you need to bring about your argument, according to Lakoff, uh, within an emotional frame of reference of the person that you're talking to. Right, so let's say you are a Republican. I need to say that I'm not. It's anyway. it would, but it would. No, but let's say so. Yeah. It would be great for America to actually be the first country in the world to be very serious about the climate. Right? Instead of saying, "Oh, America is dropping out of Paris," and America is like really not taking the data serious. Data. Look at what all the scientists said. And then you know the Republicans say. Oh. But if you say America has to be the first on the climate, that's Lakoff's idea. You know, how to become um, to use the effective system of the one of the opponent. That's a simplified me me flipping through the book quickly, of course. But but <laughs> but um, but anyway, you brought the books up for something. I'm sorry. No, but um, I mean, uh, first of all, I, I, I brought them up um, with some fear and trepidation. Uh, because I thought, you know, I'm going to bring them up and maybe Olafur Eliasson won't know what these books are and, you know, then in what, what kind of a situation do I put him? Though I did do a program once at the library, which was one of the best programs I, I remember, which was a, uh, with a, a French uh, psychoanalyst and literary scholar named Pierre Bayard, and he wrote a book called How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. And in it, there's a chapter on Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose. And so what I did is I invited Umberto Eco to talk with Pierre Bayard, which was great fun because, they, you know, Bayard could talk to him about how we all pretend to have read books. I mean, we do that all the time. No. But in this case, there, are, there is one book, um, Rebecca Solnit, mm -hmm. who I think is someone you have read and who I think is someone who matters to you. And she says something which I want to find, which I have found, that's brilliant. She says something that I think is incredibly important and then we'll go to the New York Public Library and end the evening, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, but unfortunately for me. She says, she talks about the need to change the language when we talk about climate change. And I'll read it as carefully and as slowly as I possibly can so that you really get it and then comment on it because I think it's something that really matters. I mean, she talks about the danger, really the danger of euphemism. 
You know that great line of Oscar Wilde, he said, a man who calls a spade a spade should be compelled to use one. Well, this is what Rebecca Solnit says. I'm sorry, I just get these things. I, I, I do suffer from quotomania. She says, climate change is global scale violence against places and species as well as against human beings. Once we call it by name, we can start having a real conversation about our priorities and values. Because a revolt against brutality begins with a revolt against the language that hides that brutality. Yeah. Wow. I had an exhibition in San Francisco, and the first thing I requested was to meet her, and uh, the second was to eat at Le uh, Chepanese. Uh, and the, 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 the Alice Waters, who has the Chepanese, is a climate activist, and so is Rebecca. Uh, and it was a great opportunity for me to um, you know, meet people who have been immensely inspiring, so I really recommend her. She does have that, I mean, I, lo I love her so much, so it's hard to say, but it's, it's very much also about the doom and gloom. So I'm, I, um, but it's hard to, um, I invited her to Iceland, and she's now become, as anybody who goes to Iceland, obsessed with going there. So she's now uh, also teaching at the university occasionally and so on. She's, Can I just say something? Um, you know the time, we're kind of a little bit yeah, over we, time. We, no, but I'm okay. I, I, I know, I know, I know. Because you're so jet lagged, I, I just no, want to... No, 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 I, you, thank you for helping okay, no, me out. It's great. But, um, but, but no, 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 but we'll, we'll, I promise you we'll be done in I'm 13 and to, a half minutes. I'm happy to... Uh, yeah. So forgive me for abusing your, your hospitality. But, but Rebecca really is famous for slowness. Yeah. Walking hiking in the mountains, and she has given that a language which is so, it was very important. Um, there's a few books like Wanderlust by yeah. her, it's like incredibly important. Walking and, and, and. And I think, I would like to just add, because of the book thing, and because Rebecca also came to the studio a few times, we host books in the studio as small agents. So when we put a pile of books like this, it's almost like a little parliament of ideas. And the studio is, to, to a great extent, run by amazing people who are very dedicated, one of which is Anna Engberg, who is sitting right over here. And the, the, the role that a book plays is not like me in a sort of solipsistic way, reading it and then drifting off into some other realm. Books are fierce tools. It's amazing. So when I say flip through books, it's, it's almost like through a book you can touch the world. And there's so many great books. So sometimes we just put the books out to kind of create this mind map. And, and mind it's, map, yeah. Yeah, well, it's and just so inspiring, map. yes. And obviously, it does need a little bit of reading. Uh, the, the, the playing them out, uh, yeah. But so, so, the, so I'm just saying there are many ways of, I've been thinking of being in a library. There's many ways to, uh, you know, to use books. Well, you know, Bob Dylan said famously that a library is an arsenal of liberty, right? I mean, so it, it, there's something nearly like gunpowder in it, 
You know, if you give, and your, your lamp here, in, the, in a way, is inspired by the same idea. Um, I have two questions from people who are not here and are not me. Um, one of them is from Hans-Ulrich Obrist, who, when I told him that I was speaking to you, said, ask Olafur, if you would, about his connection with Rob Grier and how um, going on a trip uh, to Iceland um, and nearly dying in the process of interviewing him, how he remembers that. Mm. Yeah, Alan Robrier is a part of the French literary movement. So he would write, or he, him and his group would write a book without the letter E. And uh, and it was a structure. It was a structure very much like the magician who would reveal the trick. So it's it's this amazing group of people. Um, Perec was one of the main. Yeah, Perec, Charles Perec. Yeah. He had a great hit in Denmark, uh, also uh, really? well, several of his books. But anyway, so Alain Robrier, and he was by the time ninety three, two or three, uh, he sadly now passed away. But not because of going to Iceland. But we took him, and it was really Hans's idea to take this sort of legendary purse person and his rather, uh, you know, you know, sort of obsessive wife, but, you know, incredibly. So, and, and we had a Jeep, and we said, well, let's drive the most remote route in Iceland possible to drive, which is pretty bumpy. And it was on the back side of the biggest glacier called Vatnajökull, the rear side of the glacier. And it's almost like the moon, because everybody goes south on the coast, right? And you have the glacier. It's very beautiful from the south because the sun is in your back. But on the north side of the glacier, it's very dreary. It's black. And you go, is it really a glacier? And there's all this water coming out under it. But the sun is, if the sun actually shines and it's not really, it's like against you. It's not beautiful at all. It's like absolutely, you know, like a sort of, a, you know, these, uh, all these uh, sort of fantasy movies, except that it's really depressing. There is no ferry coming out. Anyway, so we're driving there. And, 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 and we are very far away from everything. And Alan Robrey's plan says, this is a mistake. And there is so much water from the glacier coming up under the ground that we're driving through a very large area of quicksand. And if you stop the car, it starts sinking. So there's just one rule, don't stop the car. And you can feel it because the quicksand, you, the car is like this, because the whole sand, and you know, after 11, don't drive there, it says, don't drive, because the sun gets up high and so on. And I, say, and I love it. I love driving this in this area and so on. I've been there a few times. And I say, Alan, can we just cross? Can we not stop here? Because if we stop, the car will sink. Because we, of course, I wanted to show him the glacier, so we went quite up, uh, sort of a little bit off-road close to the glacier. And he says, I really need to get out. I really don't like this. I want to go home. I need cheese. Wine, you know what am I doing here? And 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 I look for rocks. And His Excellency, the Icelandic ambassador, is here. He can confirm this to you. Geisa vatnsleid sidri. So anyway, and I say, okay, there are some rocks over there, and we drive over there, and it's wet, and there is like ten centimeters of water everywhere. So we just look at this big. So we find a little bump, and I go, oh, it's really not good to stop. And he says. And Hans is, Opus is in the car, and he says, Hans, I think I'm going to pass away. I think this is it. <laughs> and, and Hans goes, 
Um, this is not good news. Give, no, they give me your satellite phone, and then to make a long story short, I'm so sorry, but it was a drama. We needed uh, to fly him out, and and so to see, so then this little tiny tiny plane comes, <laughs> and he looks at the plane and he goes, "I'm not going in this." Place. <laughs> So, so we have a few great uh, expeditions in Iceland, you know, close to the glacier, in fact. And he did fly, he did get on the plane, and his daughter, uh, you know, called later, and she's like 75, and she was so angry with Hans. And I was like, I'm just the driver. And so, uh, one other question I want to I'm ask sorry, you. Yeah. No, 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 no. One other yeah. question I want to ask you is from Liz Diller. I told Liz that I was coming. We'll be done very soon. Um, <laughs> Uh, with Liz Diller, she said, how can an activist artist have his or her voice heard in the new world order outside the echo chamber? Yeah, I, that's actually, I could have made that question myself. We're working on it. I feel lucky that I grew up in Denmark and, and you know, in being a part of Scandinavia, where there's a lot of trust in civic society. And I think that is one of the keys, as I've been sort of pointing out, the fact that we, the people, are more likely to succeed than all the rest of, I mean, who, 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 whoever is the rest. But I do think that um, um, I'm quite confident in this idea of the, you know, the power is, in fact, at the periphery of things. Very quickly, a few, a few pictures of the New York Public Library. If we could look at image number 43. This is um, Dionys Settle a true report of the last voyage into the west and northwest regions, written by a member of the expedition, a company that reached southern Greenland. Our own map of Mercator, which is number 44, which is much less ni nice than the one you have here in Copenhagen, which is number 26. If we can pull it up, you can compare and see that you do much better than we do. Yeah, that's yours. It's amazing. It's completely wrong, but it's so interesting. <laughs> and we could talk about that. And then number 45, um, I just quickly want to show that you. We have one of the largest menu collections in the world. When René Redzepi came, we showed him the menu collection. He was so, so impressed. We have 50,000, 60,000 menus. Very interesting. Um, and here you, it's a, a menu for a celebratory fundraising dinner for Robert Erdwin Perry, the first Arctic explorer to reach the North Pole, held in a private home on Fifth Avenue. And that uh, night, the, the menu includes truite de rivière à la Meunière, boucher de riz de veau, noisette de présal à la Jardinière, granite à la fine Champagne, poussin de Hambourg, asperges sauce hollandaise, dessert and coffee. It's very different than my climate dinner too, I can tell you yeah. that, yeah. It's a lot nicer. You, you. But I mean, that's funny that the dinner he made ended up ruining the place he was going to. Right. Um, image number 46, we have three more images. This is from the 1939 World Fair, a stand called Arctic Girls Temple of Ice. One of the amusements offered involved six slabs of ice being fashioned into a coffin in which one of eight Arctic 
girls was displayed for the viewing public, the idea being that it's quite warm inside the ice, which behaves as an igloo. Here the girls are pictured with an ice coffin and a giant melon from Arkansas. And then two, <laughs> um, then two other images, 47 and 48, also from, you know, showing the Arctic in a, in a truly sublime way. I mean, one has an impression of, of German romanticism. Now, and, and this is from Hayes and Bradford's Arctic expedition and tourist expedition to northern Greenland. I want to finish with this line from Elizabeth Colbert. You might have something to comment on it. Um, in her introduction to the uh, Ends of the Earth, an anthology of the finest writing on the Arctic and the Antarctic, she writes, because of climate change, the claim of the Arctic on our imagination has been inverted. A landscape that once symbolized the sublime indifference of nature will for future generations come to symbolize its tragic vulnerability. Well, it sort of sums up what we discussed um, today, didn't it? So I thank you, Paul, for being such a great companion here on stage. Thank you for having me. Du har lyttet til en podcast fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Husk, at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast-app. Se mere om projektet Arctic Imagination på arcticimagination.com. Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre, der også kunne være interesserede. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er Søren Jacobsen.